why does God do what he does? Why does God do what he does? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does God do what he does? I'm not necessarily saying, why does whatever happen in the world, uh, why does that happen? Because I don't necessarily, or, or I don't believe that that God, absolutely, I don't believe that God is responsible for everything that goes on in the world. There's a lot of wicked, evil stuff that, uh, that you know, that we cannot um, lay at the feet of, of uh, Almighty God. But why does God do what he does? What is God's motivation? You know, when kids do something that doesn't necessarily make sense to their parents, the kids sometimes hear this phrase, what's gotten into you right what's gotten into you and what that means is why did you do what you do why are you doing this particular thing and as as people who believe in in God who's a holy trinity we believe in a God who acts we believe in a God who is involved that he's the creator he's judge he's redeemer he's sustainer he's provider that God is involved God is involved everyone say that God is involved God is involved we worship a God who started off by creating the world and he's never stopped being involved he's you know he's not like what some people think that he you know wound things up and then he kind of left and went on a holiday and he's been on a vacation ever since like we don't believe that we believe that God is involved not necessarily all of the time and not necessarily in accordance with how we think things should go but God is involved and so I think it's a fair question to ask God why do you do what you do What motivates you? What causes you to act? Or in other words, what's got into you? What's got into God? Is it your glory? We ask him and he says, yes, that's gotten into me. Is it your justice? And God says, yes. Is it your faithfulness? And God says, yes. Is it your holiness? Is that what motivates you? And God says, yes. Is it your patience that motivates you? And God says, yes. Is it your grace and your mercy? And God says, yes. This is all these things have gotten into God. All these things motivate God, but this morning on this first morning in the year of our Lord, 2023, we're going to look at a couple of other God motivators, starting in Isaiah 63, and then we'll bridge over to Matthew chapter 2. So our lectionary reading this morning uh, starts at Isaiah 63, verse 7, and it starts with these words, I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us, even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel. Isaiah 63, verse 7. So Isaiah the prophet, he's the prophet of Judah, and he's crystal clear that about the fact that God is involved in both his life and in the nation of Judah. He says, I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all all the Lord has done for us, even the many good things, not a few good things, not one good thing, but the many good things that he has done for the house of Israel. And I wonder as we launch into 2023, if you were to take stock over the past year, what praiseworthy acts has God done in your life? I've seen that, that, uh, that some of us have kind of shared highlight, this kind of highlight reel on our social media of things that have stood out you know, to us. I spent time yesterday going through 
my journal over the past year. What praiseworthy acts has God done in your life? What inventory could you record of all that the Lord has done for you? Which of the many good things would you list if you were to list these things right now? Because Isaiah says, he says, I will make known these things. In other words, he says, I'm not going to keep them in. I'm not going to keep them to myself. You see, it's easy to witness God's intervention in grace or glory and to explain it away or to keep it quiet and say that's just between me and God. But Isaiah, he does something else. He says, I will make known. So who can you tell? Who in your life needs a boost? Who in your life needs to hear of the Lord's faithful love and his praiseworthy acts? Then Isaiah 63 continues by revealing God's motivation. Remember that the question we're asking is, is God, why do you do what you do? Or what has gotten into you? Well, now we start to see in verse 7. I'm just going to move this back a little bit. In verse 7. What is God's motivation? Well, here it says, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love. So what has gotten into God? Well, first, compassion, and secondly, an abundance of faithful love. So God sees you, and he's moved with compassion. And this compassion is an overflow of his faithful love towards you. Do you believe this, that as you're sat here, that God sees you, and his thought towards you, his motivation in acting in your life is compassion, and an abundance of faithful love. Now let's carry on a couple more verses before we uh, bridge over to Matthew chapter 2. It says in verse 8 of Isaiah, of Isaiah 63, he said, They are indeed my people, children who will not, not be disloyal, though that's exactly what they end up being over and over and over again. And then it says, And he... He became their saviour. Verse 9, in all their suffering, he suffered. I want you to latch on to that. And, his, and the angel of his presence saved them. Okay, so that's where we're going to make our jump to Matthew chapter 2. In all their suffering, he suffered. And the angel of his presence saved them. Or as the message words it, in all their troubles, he was troubled too. He didn't send someone else to save them. He did it himself in person. So God's compassion and God's steadfast love caused him to get involved in our story up to the place where he suffered along with us, up to the place where he was troubled by what we are troubled with. So those things that are on your mind, those are on God's mind as well. And this, friends, is truth for a rainy day. This is truth for a lonely life. This is truth for a heavy heart. This is truth for a brand new year. That as you suffer, God suffers too. Now we're going to move forward about 750 years more or less to the events of Matthew chapter 2. And so as we do this, I want you to keep in your right hand this thought in all their suffering he suffered, right? As we move over to Matthew 2, we're holding on to this thought in all their suffering he suffered. And then I want you to hold in your left fist that according to Isaiah 63, what has gotten into God 
What motivates God is his compassion and an abundance of faithful love. So in the right hand is in all their suffering he suffered. In, their right, in your left hand is what motivates God is, is, is compassion and an abundance of faithful love. Because what we will see in Matthew chapter 2 is how God's compassion and God's suffering meet. And it meets in the life of a two-year-old called Jesus. You know, the heart of the Christmas story, and yes, we're still in the Christmas season for this final week, the heart of the Christmas story is God stepping into our suffering, not just that he had compassion and he felt bad, but that his compassion motivates him to to suffer along with us. In all their suffering, he suffered. So with these two thoughts in our left hand and our right hand, let's move, let's zip forward 750 years to Matthew chapter 2, which starts with these words, after they were gone. Matthew 2 verse 13. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Who are they? Okay, they are the Magi. They are the wise men. They are the kings of Orient are who followed a star, who were looking for a king. They showed up at Herod's palace and he said, why don't you come back when you find the king, aka his rival? So they find, you know, the two-year-old Christ child in a house in Bethlehem, maybe 10 kilometers from Herod's palace. In other words, right on, on Herod's doorstep. Then they worship him with uh, golds of with gifts of gold for a king, frankincense for worship, and myrrh to look forward to Christ's suffering and his death. And then after that, God then tells them not to go back and tell Herod where he is. So now that we're up to speed, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, as I continue talking, keep in mind our verse from Isaiah 63. In all their suffering, he suffered. Because we often think of Christ's suffering as taking place on the cross. And that's right, that's where, all, that's where everything led to. That was the sharp edge of the suffering. This, this was the reason that Jesus came, was the cross. But sometimes we can be so focused on the cross that we forget about all the other suffering that Jesus endured as well. You see, Jesus didn't just hang out in heaven until Good Friday and then suddenly get zapped down to the cross, Star Trek style, where he suffered for a few hours and then he was in the grave for a couple of days, right? That's not what happened. Jesus' suffering started when he was a toddler, when he became a refugee. And why this matters is that for anyone, whether you're a child or an adult, for anyone who has ever felt insecure or unsafe, or threatened, anyone who has ever been bullied, or mistreated, or targeted, anyone who has had to leave one place for another because it's not safe, anyone who has had to make changes in their life simply because of where they were born, or their ethnic background, we can say to them, Jesus knows. Jesus had to flee in the night. He was on the run. He was a wanted person. He spent time as a young refugee child among the Jews in Egypt. 
In all their suffering, he suffered. So Jesus looks at you in your fragility and your vulnerability as maybe you look ahead at 2023 with uncertainty and maybe even fear. And Jesus says, I know. One of his earliest memories was leaving everything he knew for a foreign country. Jesus' suffering was not limited to a few hours on the cross. However, let's not miss the glorious irony here. It says he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I caught my son. I I called my son. Now, what we're seeing here is Matthew quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And in, Hosea, and in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, what's happening is that Hosea is looking back at the Exodus. When Israel, a brand new nation, was being led out of captivity by Moses. Only here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew is taking that history lesson from Hosea, and he's turning it into a prophecy. He's taking something from the past and Matthew's saying, hey, why don't we turn this around and why don't we look ahead into the future with it instead? And so what what Matthew's doing is he's presenting Jesus as a Moses-style savior who's coming out of Egypt to rescue an entire people. It's a second Exodus event. In other words, as Jesus became a refugee aged two, he was perfectly placed to then become a saviour in the style of Moses. Only better. Way, way better. Because even though both Moses and Jesus came out of Egypt, as it were, Jesus came, came to set free not just a people or an, an ethnic group, but he came to rescue the entire world, which includes you, which includes your loved ones, which includes everyone who accepts Jesus' offer of freedom. And all this could only happen because in all their suffering, he suffered. Then Herod, when he had realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here we have an ugly image of the ultimate narcissistic abuser wielding his power with impunity. N.T. Wright says this, that Herod the Great, who thought nothing of killing members of his own family, including his own beloved wife, when he suspected them of scheming against him, and who gave orders, you need to listen to this, Herod gave orders when dying that the leading citizens of Jericho should be slaughtered so that people would be weeping at his funeral. That Herod would not bat an eyelid at the thought of killing lots of little babies in case one of them should be regarded as a royal pretender. As his power had increased, so had his paranoia, a not unfamiliar progression as dictators around the world have shown from that day up to this. So we got paranoia. 
combined with great power, which is very different from Jesus' example of compassion and faithful love combined with suffering. Truly, Jesus was a king like no other. Now, just to be clear, uh, even though what Herod did was absolutely abhorrent and wicked and evil, we're not talking about you know, the death of thousands of babies or even hundreds of babies. Uh, there's a scholar called R.T. France who said this, estimates of the total population of Bethlehem in the first century are generally under 1,000, which would mean that the number of male children up to two years old at any one time could hardly be more than 20, even allowing for all of the districts. Now, that's not to minimize what's going on here. It's an awful atrocity, but it's helpful to have a realistic picture in our mind of what's going on here. Having said that, imagine being Jesus and growing up in, with, with that in mind. All of the community get-togethers and the school graduations and the rites of passage, all of these would have had the shadow of this massacre over them for years to come. Lawrence Ferris asks this question, from what evil do children of our time need protection? Terrorists whose victims include children, dictators who use hunger as a political weapon, enslavers of third world children for sexual abuse by the affluent of the first world, and exploiters of street children are but a few to whom the church's strongest no must be proclaimed. And I would add into this the most vulnerable children who were killed in the womb. So here in Matthew chapter 2, it now seems appropriate that we have a second prophecy that gives voice to this awful act of evil, the mourning of Rachel weeping over the children. Now, I don't like romantic comedies. I've mentioned this before. And one of the reasons why I don't like romantic comedies is that during a romantic comedy, I sometimes find myself wondering what happens after the couple walked out of church together when the credits roll to Ain't No Mountain High Enough or, you know, whatever the song is, right? And I think sometimes the Christmas story can be um, a bit of a spiritual romantic comedy in our minds where we're left with our view of Jesus lying in the manger with a glow around him and, and then we pick up the story again at Easter. But here we see that there was a chapter two to Jesus' story, that it didn't end up with ain't no mountain high enough, that there was a second chapter. It was a dark chapter, and it's Jesus fleeing to Egypt under the threat of death with all of the boys that he would have grown up with being put to death. Again, in all their suffering, he suffered. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So if you keep in count, this is the second time an angel has appeared with a message for Joseph, and this is the third prophecy that is fulfilled in our short passage today. 
So Joseph, Mary and Jesus return home when the angel gives them the all clear that Herod is dead, only to find out that Herod's son Archelaus is now in charge and he's not any better than his dad. The apple does not fall far from the tree in that family. And Joseph and his family realize that that 10 kilometers from Bethlehem to, to, to Jerusalem is too close for comfort. So they relocate to an even smaller village called Nazareth, which probably had less than 500 people living there to fulfill the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Only there's a problem with this prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. And the problem with this prophecy is that nowhere in the Old Testament is there a prophecy that says he would be called a Nazarene. Nowhere. You can look it up. And this is a bit of a problem, especially if we believe that the word of God is true and trustworthy and we can hold on to it. So how can Jesus fulfill a prophecy that was never made? And this is where I turn to the scholars to help me. You see, there are three ways for us to understand how Jesus fulfilled this non-existent prophecy of being called a Nazarene. And I think they're all helpful. The first one is this, that that Nazareth comes from the word Netzer, meaning branch. And one of Jesus' names is the branch of David, which is one of the major messianic themes in the Old Testament in in the Hebrew scriptures. So that's one way to understand that he would be called a Nazarene, he would be called a Netzer, he would be called a branch, the branch of David. Second one, that Nazareth is similar to the word Nazarite, which refers to someone who was consecrated, you know, by God, by means of a vow, someone like Samson or Samuel or maybe John the Baptist, those are Nazarites. And each of these are reasonable options. And they resonate powerfully because Jesus was a Netzer, he was a branch, and Jesus was a Nazarite in the sense that he was consecrated for a special purpose. In fact, he's probably the most important Nazarite, if that's how you understand that phrase. But there's another way to understand this fulfilling of this prophecy that's not a prophecy, that he would be called a Nazarene. And and Norman Geisler says this, that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. That's Isaiah 53, verse 3. And so, if you came from Nazareth, it was the equivalent of coming from the wrong side of the tracks. Nazareth was this nowhere place. It was a little redneck village that, of 500 people that, that messiahs didn't come from Nazareth. Messiahs did not come from Nazareth. In fact, in John 1 verse 46, Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So not only was it a nowhere place, but it had a bad reputation. So being called a Nazarene would have been like being called a nobody. And so in a sense, all three of these interpretations, especially when taken together, are very compelling. He shall be called a Nazarene because he will be a branch of David. He shall be called a Nazarene because he's consecrated to God for a special purpose and he shall be called a Nazarene. He is the God who made himself nothing, who chose to come from nowheresville from the wrong side of the tracks in order to save us. And why did Jesus do this? 
Why did Jesus become a Nazarene? Why did the eternal Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, why did he choose to become a baby who grew up to be a toddler, uh, who received a present from a stranger that foretold his death? Why did, Jesus, why did Jesus choose to grow up in a world that from the get-go was against him, a world that was threatened by him, a world that wanted him dead, and that failed when he was two but would succeed when he was 33? Why did Jesus become a Nazarene? Here's the answer, because God is motivated by, by compassion and faithful love and because God is a God who in all their suffering he suffered in other words Jesus knows Jesus empathizes Jesus has walked in your shoes and he started in walking in your shoes from the moment he started walking as a toddler and I think that he he did this because in a uh, skeptical and cynical world that's not interested in a God who's detached or a God who's far off or a God who just rules from on high. A world that's not interested in a God who's unmoved by our sadnesses or our circumstances. Our world needs a God with mud under his fingertips, with tear tracks down his dirty little cheeks. A God who escapes under cover of darkness on the shoulders of his stepdad. A God who lost his friends in one black day when he was only two years old. We need a God that we can call a Nazarene. A God who fulfills prophecy. A God who chose to be consecrated and set apart for a specific purpose. And a God who chose to come from nowhere. Who chose to make himself nothing. So as we peek over the edge of 2023, here's what I know. Some of us are going to have the best year ever. Success, grandchildren, new babies, weddings, new jobs, new opportunities. But some of us sat here, we're going to lose loved ones. And some of us are going to lose our jobs. And some of us are going to lose hope. Some of us are going to lose faith. Some of us are going to suffer. Some of us aren't going to make it to 2024. And in the uncertainty of an uncertain world, I invite you to place your uncertain hand in the strong hand of Jesus the Nazarene. And to trust him, to hold on to him, because Jesus knows and he doesn't just know he's walked in your shoes. He's entered into your pit of despair so that he can lift you out into new life in him. And so as I close, I ask you to receive these words from another of today's lectionary readings. These are God's words to you as we go into 2023. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters now, since the children have flesh and, and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, 
he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of his people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 2. Amen. So what motivates God? What causes him to get involved what causes to God or what causes God to act in the way that he does? What has gotten into God? And the answer is you. And my prayer as we move into 2023 is that when someone asks you what has gotten into you, what motivates you, what causes you to act in the way that you do? What gives you hope despite of the way that things appear? What has gotten into you? You can answer, God has gotten into me because I got into God.